Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, my friend? Great. So it's LGBT History Month. So happy mm-hmm. LGBT History Month. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see a lot of history being made by LGBT folks in the church mm-hmm. in the near uh, future. Also, when this episode comes out, it will probably be Monday, October 11th which is National Coming Out Day. Oh. So, surprise. <laughs> surprise indeed. Um, it will also be here in Boston, the Boston Marathon. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. the ma- marathon has been moved to October 11th this year. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was thinking about that because... It, it, have you watched the marathon in person? Why I don't know. I have not done that, and I don't exactly get the appeal. Have you done that? I have. So I. Oh yeah, went, you went with the you went the you went with the Crockett's a little bit ago, didn't you? A couple years ago. Yeah, I've also done it a number of times, and I used to live right on the beginning of Heartbreak Hill. So right there, where I lived in Newton Center, right there, I could yeah. actually see the the marathon path commonwealth ave from my uh-huh. from my house the kitchen so anyway it was so interesting because right when they passed my house where i no longer live by the way they had one more hill one final hill and then after they go over that hill and they pass boston college then it's all the way downhill it's actually downhill down towards uh, the finish line in downtown boston so I was watching these people, and by the time they got to me, they've already done several several major hills already. One of the things that I keep hearing from the people who are cheering them on, and they're cheering on strangers, right? They just say, keep on going. There's just one more hill. Like, it's right here at mile 21, and mm-hmm. they're that's probably like one of the worst times in the race because you, you're so exhausted from 20 miles, you're at your depletion. Uh, it gets. I think it might get a little easier when you end up going downhill and you're not on these hills. But it's so tough. And a lot of people would give up were it not for the fact that there are people cheering them on, strangers. Like they need mm. someone clapping for them every footstep. And I was thinking about this in terms of the queer community. We don't have that. Well, I shouldn't say we don't have that. We don't have it the way it should be. There should be people. We should have everyone on board with us, cheering us on, cheering us on when we develop and live authentically and have our own chosen families, right? And why don't we have that? And so that makes life so much harder. It makes people want to give up, makes people not live into their potential. And of course, it reminds me of something in the New Testament because everything does here's the bible the, here's the, the bible <laughs> what did you say i said here comes the bible like yeah. no matter what we're discussing bible always going to make its way in oh yeah we're, we can talk about anything and then i'll and then there, there's going to be bible oh yeah i should be like those infomer- oh, infomercials but wait there's more <laughs> there's always more there's, there's always, always more. more so okay the letter to the hebrews was written to people who were discouraged people who were feeling like they were going to give up on faith, people who had to encounter a lot of difficulty and figure out what to do. And especially you get this throughout the entire letter to the Hebrews, but especially in chapters 11, 12, and 13. And here's how Hebrews 12 begins. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out for us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I just love that. I think that is something many people in the church will need to hear whatever stage of faith development they're in. There is room for cheering people on, running the race with endurance, and focusing on Jesus. And that should be the focus of every general conference. And I'm sure you're going to want to talk about general conference. But that is keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, 
not on any thing secondary to Jesus, but on Jesus. So what are your thoughts about stuff? About stuff? Are, are we moving into general conference? Yeah. Thoughts on general conference. Okay. So, okay. General conference. Um, conference was overall uneventful in my opinion. I, I don't have all that much to say about it in terms of messages I liked or disliked. I, I may have very well liked more than I disliked. Uh, you know, Sister Eubank, she brought some good uh pro-refugee heat again. I really appreciated that. Uh, any moment we get an opportunity to affirm our uh, siblings that are refugees, I'm all about that. And Sister Eubank, she, she's done this more than once in the past, so I'm just very grateful. I, I love, like, she is one of the talks that I'm regularly looking forward to every conference. Like, if Sister Eubank could just speak in every session, I would be a happy person. Uh, but yeah, I really liked her message. I uh, also liked Elder Kapishka's message. Um, I don't know if you recall his talk, but he gave a profoundly personal and moving talk on mental health. One of the best that I have heard on the subject at conference, I think ever. It, it felt like a wake-up call in several ways. He stressed the need for people to educate themselves on mental illness, particularly parents, and directed people to mental health resources in the Gospel Library app. He also let people know that outside help like therapy and medication may be necessary and needing them do, doesn't mean that you have character defects. And that's a pretty common stigma within I mean, society in general, but also the church, too. I feel like in a culture of toxic positivity, the temptation to tie mental wellness to spiritual diligence is particularly high. And uh, Elder Kapishka's words were very important words to hear during that talk and uh, he gave even more personal examples he talked about mental illness in his own family his own children um you know depression anxiety suicide ideation just there was there was a lot going on there i had never heard such personal information in conference i don't think so it was refreshing it was heartbreaking but it was but it also felt very necessary. Like I was so glad that he went there with the conversation on mental health because I feel way too often like um, people are tempted to feel that they have in the gospel all the tools they need. And that's not to say that, quote unquote, the gospel doesn't have the tools, but I feel like part of the gospel means accepting professional help whether that be in the form of medication or actual therapy mm -hmm. and i don't feel like a lot of people are ready to make that leap or are ready to accept that but with elder kapishka's talk they might at the very least be open to it if they're not believers uh by now uh more than anything i'm really glad that parents of uh, children with mental illness got to hear that talk and perhaps if they don't have the vocabulary now to talk about it perhaps they would at least be willing to learn the vocabulary after hearing that talk so i really i really appreciated his talk that was one of the uh, highlights for me i also really liked brad wilcox's talk for the most part brad wilcox he's a mm -hmm. he's a brilliant speaker and he's a brilliant writer and he stays you know, just spitting whole bars. I think he titled this talk, Worthiness is Not Flawlessness. And that's a bar in and of itself. But I really liked a few of the things that he said. And uh, I'm paraphrasing now, but I believe he said that someone isn't a hypocrite if they keep sinning, but they are a hypocrite if they try to hide the sin or lie about it. And I feel like that is such a liberating idea for those inclined to uh, scrupulosity. But also, I think it's a brilliant idea for those in the church, too. Or, or just the church in general. Right. Um, I was specifically thinking about some words that Oak said about the, how the church doesn't do apologies. Or just this general air that the church has about not really needing to improve on anything or apologize for anything or acknowledge anything. Uh, so I don't. 
And you know, I'm not, you know how I feel about apologies with the church. I don't necessarily, I'm not necessarily looking for an apology when it comes to the priesthood and temple restrictions uh, per se. But I do think it is hypocritical of the church to not acknowledge the harm of the priesthood ban or the effects of racism in the church today. To me, that is hypocritical. It's dishonest. Like to not be more deliberate about implementing a specific policy or strategy to acknowledge attitudes and actions of prejudice both in our pews and outside of our pews, that feels dishonest to me because it just Mm -hmm. does not acknowledge and it doesn't take into account the harm that the 126-year dispossession of of a black black saints has done and is still doing to us. I just generally don't like that, uh, you know, we clearly have a race issue in the church still. And even where I am in Harlem, my ward is predominantly white, despite the neighborhood being mm-hmm. overwhelmingly black. And I can't help but acknowledge that there's no way that's an accident. And uh, the church hasn't really done much to address that. So I would love to see the church take this uh, attitude that Brad Wilcox has spoken about at conference, just this idea yeah. that we don't have to be perfect and that flawlessness isn't and it should not be the goal. Flawlessness isn't the goal. Honesty is the right. goal. And we're not hypocrites and we're or we're not there's nothing wrong with us for acknowledging that we've have made this you know egregious mistake. But where I think we're really messing up is not fully owning up to it. So I feel like there's some great application we can use in uh, Brother Brad Wilcox's words for how we talk about race in the church today. Uh, did, did you have any immediate thoughts about that? Well, it just what you said reminded I I didn't listen to the talk, but uh-huh. so by everyone by the way I was gone over the conference weekend so I didn't listen I caught a few of them but I did not uh, go through all of them and I'll find find time for that sometime. But speaking of Wilcox, I think so much of uh, authentic repair and reconciliation begins with truth telling i think that's something we're afraid of in the church is telling the oh, truth absolutely about ourselves about our history telling the truth i really about, like that esau macaulay quote uh where he says peacemaking doesn't happen without truth telling it's one of my favorite quotes of his yeah and so we haven't really named the truth about how we as an institution have harmed black folks and communities of color uh, in general as well and participated yeah. in and benefited benefited from and failed to acknowledge all of the oppression that we've done i i think that it begins with truth telling and then you have to sit with that and think about how we not just telling the truth about what we did, but what we are doing and how we continue to participate yes, in racial injustice today. Yes, sir. And then we need yes, to, sir. To, to take that to the Lord and mm-hmm. have a conver- have a real conversation about that. I, this is so mm-hmm. bugs me about the church is we just can't have real conversations about stuff. Mm-hmm. So much of it is a conversation around image or people make talking points not in order to construct a good dialogue but in order to to tangibly signal which side they're on i think that's why we hear all those buzzwords in the church is people want to use these buzzwords to increase their status within this church culture like how many times do you hear people use the word atonement and don't know what it means but they use the word because they want to signal that they're on board with the program or things like covenant path or whatever is the latest thing that is uh people say these things and repeat these things like prevail with god okay that's another thing elder uh, uh president nelson gave this talk on prevailing with god and now everyone's saying it not because Mm -hmm. of of what they're trying to communicate, but because they want to get on with the bandwagon of, oh, look how devoted and loyal I am to the prophet. So they're just really signaling their loyalty rather than mm-hmm. actually tra- changing hearts and minds. Because if they were trying to change mm-hmm. hearts and minds, they would go about it completely differently. Uh, I could still keep talking. I don't know what you, what you, what that pause was for. 
<laughs> well, I just wanted to make sure you were done. That's all. Um, were there any other talks you wanted to talk about? I mean, just in passing, because um, overall, the primary thing I wanted to say about conference was, you know, most of the talks had, or I mean, all the talks had good messages in them, I think. Um, I listened to most of conference, but I didn't hear every message. Um, but most of them had good general messages. Um, but two things got in the way of my ability to fully appreciate the talks. One of the biggest things was context. You know what I'm saying? It was really hard for me to mm -hmm. really enjoy, for example, Jeffrey R. Holland's talk after, you know, that little, that little kerfuffle of his last month. You know what I'm saying? I, I couldn't listen to a man talk about commitment to Christ, about, you know, the virtues of the lessons that we learned from the rich young ruler. Meanwhile, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, it's just hard for me to listen to a guy talk about commitment to Christ while he is talking in a way that encourages dispossession of perhaps even bullying of members of the uh, LGBTQ community. Just it was hard for me to take that message seriously. And I'm wrestling with this tension within myself of does that give me a right mm -hmm. to be critical of this guy? Should I still listen to the message anyway? Because I don't believe that Elder Holland is a bad guy. You know what I'm saying? Just, But at the same time, he needs to be held accountable for what he's saying. And, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, no matter how good his advice is or how good his counsel is, I have to hold that intention with how this man is encouraging people to commit to Christ by dispossessing LGBTQ folks. And that is not sitting well with me. You know what I'm saying? Like, right, because then you, you've missed the whole point. Right. If, if I Christ, feel like he's if you, missing the if you don't get that piece of it. So it's just hard for me to listen to that message from him. And like I said, I'm wrestling with uh, that within myself. And I don't know how justified that wrestle is. Maybe I'm completely justified in squinting my eyes at the dude the whole time because I don't like what he had to say about LGBTQ folks. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm wrestling with that. But that's, just, but that's the one thing. That's one thing that made conference difficult for me to listen to and watch. Uh, the other thing was the lack of uh, specificity. And I guess this is the reason they call it general conference. We're not supposed to get uh, specific direction from the brethren and, uh, you know, the rest of the leaders. So maybe that is a more of a me problem than it is a them problem. But even still, I still hold out hope during every conference that I'm going to hear something that I can use, hear something that would validate mm -hmm. the struggle that we are engaged in, that validates uh, the push for, you know, civil rights in America and for equal rights for LGBTQ folks and acknowledgement and affirmation of other people on the margins in the church. But I can't do that with a lot of these messages because just as much as they could validate um, the kind of commitment to Christ that you and I talk about, they could right. validate the kind of commitment to Christ that Desnet is talking about. And that is a problem. Yeah. I need mm -hmm. more specificity. For for example, Elder Renlin's talk, consistent like the man gives mm -hmm. consistently some of my favorite talks, like consistently. And his talk in principle was great. He he was a uh, his talk was about unity in Christ, abolishing enmity between people, which is a great thing to talk about. He talked and you know there's some good quote there's some good quotables in there. Uh, for example, he said First contention, like he said, contention weakens our collective witness to the world of Christ and the redemption that comes through his merits, mercy, and grace. Great quote. Mm -hmm. He also said, contention is spiritually unhealthy for individuals. We are robbed of peace, joy, and rest, and our ability to feel the spirit is compromised. Those are important and necessary truths. Um, so, you know, I, I liked what he had to say there. Um, but even still, some of the other things he said when he was talking about not letting differences cause contention or not letting differences get in the way of our ability to, uh, you know, appreciate each other or love each other. I was like, now, hold on a second. Which people are you talking about, sir? Because we do have a problem. Like, I will concede that. But at the same time, we got to acknowledge that there are certain groups of people whose... Um, 
whose lack of love is causing trouble. And it's not so much that both people are equally culpable in this problem. I don't want anybody to get that message because we're not just talking Mm -hmm. about simple differences of, of opinion right now. Like that's not what's been happening in our most urgent and important issues when it has come to uh, COVID or when it has come to the racial tension that exists in this country, or when it comes to uh, the tension between LGBTQ folks and the church, we are not equal parts culpable in the contention that exists in the church. Do you hear what I'm trying to say? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I and I want the brethren to acknowledge that because as soon as we become equal in our culpability, then the opposition to civil rights can be just as valid as the fight for civil rights itself. And that's not a message I want to send out there. Yeah, and it's it's challenging because this gets back to what I was saying earlier. It seems like in the church we can't have real conversations. Right. Right. I also hate to say this is like a white people thing too. Like we don't want to actually address the issue. We want it to be nice and polite and like not actually deal with stuff. And that is, we're, we're suffering the consequences of that type of attitude. I think they come out with these statements that ever, that sound nice and that are, uh, lowest common denominator type statements that that people everyone should agree with and won't offend anyone and and like theoretically yeah we should all agree that we should do, you know be united and have no contention yeah that's not the problem is that we don't agree on this abstract truth it's can we actually right. have the conversation that we need to have and they're not having that conversation mm-hmm. and so it gets back to my point, like I said, about can we have the hard conversation? And they apparently are afraid to do that. And if they say yeah. something that everyone can agree with, then they haven't said anything, right? They need to say something up there that gets half the church mad. And, yes, not, and not the oppressed half, right? Or the oppressed portion. They need to say something that gets the oppressors mad. Let's go on and talk about DNC sections 115 to 120. I only had something brief to say about 115 and something brief to say about 119. Very good. Well, before we go ahead and uh, get in there, I just want to remind everybody that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So uh, I'm not going to have anything. The only thing I have to say about Section 115 is going to be in relation to Section 117. So uh, I'm going to hold off until uh, after you say what you got to say about 115. Okay, so let's look at 115. And the thing, the one thing I want to talk about here is the name of the church. So here we are in April of 1838, and we are about to or we're told to build a temple in far west, if I understand this correctly. And yeah, that sounds we right. also have the name of the church, which originally was the Church of Christ, and then in 1834 was changed to the Church of the Latter-day Saints, and then here in 1838, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And that's what it says here in verse 4. For thus shall my church be called in the last days even... The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now let's talk about the, each of the pieces of this. Okay. It's a long and clunky name, and it got even longer and clunkier when the reorganized put reorganized on the front of it. That's why they. That's half the reason why they changed their name to Community of Christ is because their name was so long and clunky that it was whatever. Anyway, mm. uh, I love our siblings in Community of Christ, by the way. So if any of you are listening, like... We have some holy envy for the later sections of your Doctrine and Covenants, like sections 161 to 165. Really good stuff. We should, we should do a thing about them like later in the year. Anyway, so... That'd be fun. We know some folks in Community of Christ, don't we? What? We know some people in Community of Christ, we do. don't we? Yeah, we do. All right, just making sure. Yeah. 
So what I want to say is let's look at the elements, the different entities in this title, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. First is the word church. The Greek word is ekklesia, which means an assembly or a gathering. It is not an institution. It is not a building in Salt Lake. It is not some, you know, it, you see here this all the time. The church did this, the church did that. What they really mean is some bureaucrat in a building in Salt Lake did it, right? Some bureaucrat assembled this thing, made this statement, did this thing, collected the right signatures, got the certain brethren on board, and came out with this thing, that whatever. That's not the church. We're the church. The church is the assembly right. that right. is centered on Jesus Christ and consists of all of the Latter-day Saints. So that gets back to the second and third parts of this title of the church. Notice, there's no leaders here, there's no brethren, there's no prophet, there's no apostles. This is not the church of the brethren. There is actually a church called the Church of the Brethren, and we're not it, okay? We are the Church of Jesus Christ. We are not the Church of Russell Nelson. We're not the Church of Dallin Oaks. We're not the Church of Derek Knox. Um, as much as some people would like that, that would be a, that actually would be a disaster. It really would. I All of you be out thankful out there that this is the Church of Jesus Christ and not the Church of Derek Knox, because we would be having family homo evening every night if I were the, it were my church. <laughs> it's not my church. <laughs> family um, homo evening. You ain't nothing, bro. <laughs> yeah, it's not my church. I don't act like it's my church either. This is the church of Jesus Christ. That is the center. Jesus is the alpha and the omega. The most, and notice this, this isn't the church of the family. The family isn't the center of the church. The family isn't what we worship. It is Jesus Christ, the big, the, the be all and end all of everything, the Alpha and the Omega, like the living God incarnate. This is what it's all about. And then the Latter-day Saints. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's us. It's the constituent body, the final court of appeal in the church, uh, where the buck stops, it stops with us, the common consent of all of us, the working together of all of us, holding our leaders and holding one another accountable, all of us, right? We're all on the same path here. So that's what I love about the name of our church. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's like a great name for a church. We should live into that and not be the church of, of President Nelson or the church of... Uh, heteronormative family structures, right? That is not what we worship. We do not worship the church. We do not worship the prophets. We do not worship uh, the family. We worship Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, some people are going to say, well, we don't worship Jesus Christ. We worship the Father. But if you actually look at the New Testament, absolutely, there is worship of Jesus Christ in the Gospels and all the way up until the book of Revelation, You've got worship of Jesus Christ. Anyway, so what does this have to do with conference? I think we should hold conference, which I didn't really watch, in dialogue with the name of our church. Because when we, when we look at things like follow the prophet, that's another one of those buzzwords that people say, not really because they want people to follow the prophet, but because it will increase their standing in the community. If you say the right words, if you get up there and say, follow the prophet, you're gonna get a lot of people applauding you, but no movement, no growth, no, no development, right? If right. people really right. wanted people to follow the prophet, they would be out there getting them to treat immigrants better. They would be out there rooting right. out racism. They would be out there yes, getting sir. people vaccinated. Yes, sir. Follow the prophet means nothing if you're not going to put something behind it. So there's all these people that say follow the prophet and then don't actually follow the prophet. Anyway, so Ooh. let's talk about what it means to follow the prophet. And see, here's where you and I are theologians. We actually have to critically think and define what follow the prophet means. Derek and, called me a theologian, guys. Derek yes. called me a theologian. Yes, we are, we're theologians. and Witnesses. Now you're on the hook for it, for, for, for being it. 
right? I know. So two of the most important things in theology, if you're doing systematic theology, are definitions and distinctions. Because if you have the right definition or the right distinction, you can really solve some problems. And so I'm going to offer a definition of follow the prophet. So here's right. what I think. You getting into the some prof- ecclesiology now? Well, yeah. So here's what I think follow the prophet means. Follow the prophet means to go where the prophet is pointing, not to go where the prophet is standing. Let me say that again. Say that again. To follow the prophet means to go where the prophet is pointing, not to go where the prophet is standing. And those are very different places. Yes, sir. Because the prophet is always, when acting as a true prophet, pointing towards Christ. They're always diverting and deflecting and reflecting back to Christ. That's the whole point. Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, everything, right? Right. And what does that mean practically? That means we should look at every talk and see how it points to Christ, and that's where we go. And that's why if you truly follow the prophet the way I defined it, you'll never go astray. Because if you follow the prophet when the prophet points to Christ, you won't go astray. And I think if you follow the prophet by turning around on your path and going back to where the prophet is, even though the prophet is pointing towards Christ ahead of you, right? And I guess the analogy is like, we're all on a path. If you're on one level or one dimension ahead of the prophet and closer to Christ on some issue, and the prophet's behind you, urging you, pointing forward to Christ, and you turn away from Christ and walk backwards to where the prophet is, you just didn't follow the prophet. You actually failed in following the prophet. You went to where the prophet was, but you didn't follow the prophet because the prophet and everyone else are turned around facing Christ. And no one knows Christ perfectly. I don't know Christ's will perfectly. That's what Paul's point was in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where he says we know in part and we prophesy in part, right? Our knowledge is imperfect. Our uh, ability to prophesy, to ability to understand God's will is partial. And so is mine. I mean, I'm not out here saying that I know better than everyone else. I'm saying that we're all in the same boat. We each have some partial knowledge of God. We each have different gifts, and we have different things that we're able to bring to the table. And I think this solves the problem that people have with, well, there's two problems. There's a problem around, well, what does it mean to follow the prophet? And then there's a problem around, what does it mean that the prophet will never lead us astray? And I solve both of those problems by saying that to follow the prophet is to go to Christ. Because that's where the prophet is and should be pointing at all times. And if you follow Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, you will not be led astray. I love what what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, where he says, I resolved to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. It's always about pointing to Jesus. And this is what John the Baptist did so well. You can see in iconography how he literally is painted, pointing at Jesus and saying, Behold, the Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God. He is the forerunner of Jesus, pointing to Jesus. That is when prophets are at their best. That is what prophets do. And if they're not pointing to Jesus, then they're not acting like prophets. And so... I don't Which need painting to go into- is that, by the way? Because I what? just saw that this week and I forgot the name of it. You're talking about a very famous painting of Christ and John pointing to him, right? There are many of those. Okay, I'm thinking of a specific one, and I just yeah, saw it. Yeah, there's there's class several this specific week. famous ones, but there's it's quite often that you'll find John the Baptist pointing to Jesus. Okay, in, uh, I'm going to find paintings. the name of it. I'm going to put it in the show notes so people can know what you're making a reference to. Yeah, and I think it's. It's really interesting how how uh, how this ties into something that John said in Luke chapter 3 and also in Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist is the one who said that when the leaders of the people came to John the Baptist for baptism, he said to them, 
that they need to repent and don't even begin to think to yourself that we have Abraham as our father. John told them, for I tell you that God can raise up children for Abraham from these stones. Now that is a very offensive thing to say because apparently people were bragging and boasting about their identity as offspring of Abraham and like, ooh, we've got this exclusive thing that the rest of the world doesn't have and God's gonna look out on us favorably because we have it all to ourselves. And like John says, look you fools, that doesn't count. That's not worth anything. Your claim to being offspring of Abraham is worthless because God can make these stones children of Abraham. Like it's it's nothing. And I think we have a similar thing in the church today where people say, oh, we're the only church that has the priesthood. We're the only church that has temples. We're the only church that has blah, blah, blah. We're the only church that does this. You've you done messed up, as we would say in Texas, and fell in the same trap that thinking that just because you have the temple, uh, just because you have these ordinances, just because you're sealed, that is the end of the story. No, yeah, like God can raise up temples out of these stones. God can raise up sealed families out of these mushrooms. Like that's on judgment day, that's not gonna matter, okay? Think about what Jesus talked about. Look at the rich young ruler. What were the, at least in Mark's version, what were the commandments that Jesus told the rich young ruler? All of them were love for neighbor. None of them were love for God. It was all about, you know, don't kill, steal, adultery, defraud, honor father and mother, all that other stuff. Love for neighbor was the center of what Jesus said you had to do. And so love for God and love for neighbor aren't actually in conflict, even though some legal scholars in the church might want to make them. What I'm saying now goes back to what I said about the temple last week. So many people want to boast in the temple and think that the temple is a place where we can go to perform magic spells that will trick God. It will not work. There will be no place to hide on judgment day. The rocks will fall on you and smash you and roll away and you'll be, uh, my metaphors getting all mixed up because I am so upset at people who think that they can trick God. Like, like because they did the hokey pokey. Like, you know how you, when you do the hokey pokey, you have to hold your, you put your foot in a certain place. If you put your foot in and, and like, people think that, oh, if I just put my foot in the right place, I can trick God into making sure I'm with my family forever. I'm like, nope, that's not how it works. You've just bypassed all of the spiritual, moral, and ethical development that you were put on this earth to learn if you think that just doing a bunch of magic spells in the temple will get you somewhere. It won't. That's what Jeremiah said. That's what that entire anthology of quotes about the temple that I gave last week said, and I probably should stop talking about that because I don't want to talk more about that. But back to John the Baptist. See, this is what happens, folks, when I don't prepare. I end up just saying what's on my mind, and it goes all over the place. I'm back to John the Baptist. If you look at John the Baptist in John chapter 3, John says about Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. That is what a true prophet does. If you see a prophet taking the attention off of him or herself, or themselves, onto Jesus, then they are prophesying. If you see them building up power and privilege for themselves, consolidating loyalty, they're not pointing to Christ. They're pointing to themselves, and, and that we don't have time for. That's so that is why you I'm said saying— that. You said you didn't watch conference, right? I did not. It's really interesting. There was a lot of talks that focused on loyalty to the brethren— and I right. just thought that was interesting that you right. didn't watch conference yet. You pointed that problem out immediately. Right. Well, I heard. I heard stuff afterward. Okay, just making sure. Yeah, I heard stuff afterward. And so that's why I talk about my definition of follow the prophet as go to where they're pointing, not where they're standing. So loyalty should be really focusing on the goal, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, running the race next to the prophet, not chasing the prophet. We are all right. running the race towards Jesus. Let's, what do you think I've been talking so much? What do you think about 
all of these <laughs> things that I just dumped. I, <laughs> I, I agree, man. Like, um, all I can say is, well, all I can do is add my witness to what you've just said. And we, we've spoken about this subject a few times before, about what it means to follow the prophet, about what it means that the prophets won't, never, won't ever lead us astray, about the function of uh, the church, the scriptures, the prophet, and how all of it is ultimately, or all of them are ultimately tools that are to point us to Christ. So, like, I don't, I don't feel like I need to say anything mm-hmm. extra about that, except just to acknowledge that I know what you said is true, and I hope people earnestly take that to heart because uh, we we see the danger of mm-hmm. you know following the pointer instead of what they're pointing at. Like when you were um, giving that example, you know it was a really. It's a really dumb thing, but I just recalled this moment where I was like a kid. Uh, I was like seven or eight years old, and I used to I used to dance as a kid. Like I did mm. dance recitals and dance competitions. Mm. And I remember during this one competition, one that we didn't end up getting first place at. I remember I did something pretty boneheaded, and I remember I was looking at my teacher, and I could clearly see that she was pointing to the stage, but I walked towards her. And mm. in walking towards her, instead of walking on stage, I missed my mark. And, you know, it kind of threw things off of the number and confused some people on the stage. But I was just thinking about that as you talked about the function of a prophet to point to Christ and how we're supposed to go where they're pointing and not where they are, because that can cause problems if we go to where they're pointing. Was I closer to where I was supposed to go as a result of going uh, to my teacher instead of the stage, yes, I was, but ultimately I missed the mark. I missed my cue and I missed mm-hmm. opportunities mm-hmm. because I chose to go to where my teacher was rather than where she was pointing. So it, 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 it's, it's a dumb example, I think, but like it was the first thing I thought of when you, you know, brought up that example simply because I know mm-hmm. what the cost mm-hmm. of that is. I know what the cost of going where someone is pointing as a or sorry, going to where they are instead of where they're pointing is. Right. So uh, I just really appreciated that example. Right. We're not called to be situated exactly like the prophet. We're called to be the best versions of ourselves, and the prophets mm-hmm. are called to point us to Christ. Right. And right. that gets back to one of the foundational things for going into conference. And I think a lot of people may dread conference a lot of people may not get much out of it, and a lot of people might wonder what's going on, but I'm going to reframe it when I go in to actually go and make up the conference. I'm going to go and reframe it this way, and this goes back to my commandment enumeration project, which I'm a failure on. We were talking about this earlier, how I have big dreams and I don't actually do the work, but one of the commandments that people miss as the commandments is the commandment to test the spirits the gift of discernment of spirits, the uh, commandment in 1 Thessalonians 5.21 that says, test all things and hold fast to what is good. And that is something that I can go in with the intentionality and deliberate mindfulness of, I am watching this conference and this is an opportunity to fulfill the divine commandment upon me to test all things and hold fast that which is good. I love the idea of having more commandments and having more opportunities to obey the commandments so that when conference time rolls around, I actually get to, I get to infuse myself with more holiness and power and spirituality by obeying, by having an extra opportunity to obey the commandment to test all these things and hold fast that to that which is good or as in 1 John 4, to, to test the spirits. And so, uh, yeah, 1 John 4 is very interesting. I don't have it in front of me, so I might not get the wording exactly right, but it says not to believe every spirit, but to test the spirits because false prophets have gone out into the world. And how do you test the spirits? According to 1 John 4, there's three things. The first thing is a true spirit, one that is teaching truth, will not look at Jesus as a concept or an idea 
or a tool of getting what you want or an instrument of some other thing, but it will end up centering Jesus as the embodied reality of the living God. So many people in the church think of Jesus as the, oh, that's my little ticket so I can be with my family together. Like when you go to Disneyland, you have fun at Disneyland and you throw the ticket away, right? You, you can just drop it off in the nearest trash can once, once you get in, right? And that's some people's attitudes toward Jesus. Jesus is only the little loophole that they need to go through to be with their family forever and their family is actually the thing that they worship, right? And it's actually the other way around. Families were created to glorify Christ, not, the, not that Christ was created to glorify families. And my point is, 1 John 4, we've got to confess the reality of God having come in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and that will change everything. The incarnation of the Son of God reorients everything. Everything is different because God was made flesh in the uh, body uh, of the Virgin Mary, right? That is where the incarnation happened. And that is where the word was made flesh. And that changes everything, right? It changes all your priorities. It changes all of your, uh, every focus. And that is the first test is does this teaching urge the centrality of the embodied and enfleshed Jesus Christ, which changes everything. The second thing is, the author of First John says, you can know them by whether their teaching conforms to the New Testament authors, right? So you can test. He says, well, do they listen to us? Like, do they conform to this body of knowledge that we have in the New Testament. And so we can test spirits by comparing them to what we have learned from John and from the other authors of the New Testament. And the third thing that we can do to test the spirits is to see whether they urge love. This whole second part of 1 John 4 is all about God is love, right? Does this promote love? Anyone who hates their neighbor and say they, says they love God is mm-hmm. lying. Is is mm-hmm. It's a big mess. And so those are the three things. Number one, does it center the, in, the embodied God in Jesus Christ? Number two, does it conform to the teachings of the New Testament authors? And three, does it actually infuse the world with more love or not and we've got some people out here trying to say that god's love is conditional we don't have time for that god's love the agape of the new testament is unconditional love it is unconditional and why because god is love If God's love is conditional, then God is only conditionally God, and that is the biggest nonsense I've heard in my entire life. God being only half God, or not God at all, right? Any God that cannot love sinners is not God, not a God worthy of worship. It is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that God so loved the world that God gave God's only son, right? God loves sinners. God loves us not because we've earned it, but because that is the character of God is to love the ungodly, right? And so I am not, and I did hear about this unconditional love business. But anyway, my point is that we can compare the teachings of the apostles with what I just outlined in 1 John 4, and some people might have a problem with with whether our leaders are on track with these things. Because when we see stuff such as temples urged rather than, than the centra- centrality of Christ, when we see things that uh, depart from the established truths of the New Testament, we are the restored New Testament church, right? For me, my first love is the New Testament. And when we see truths that divert us from love and make us less loving and make God out to be less loving, then we've got a problem, 
So I should stop right now. <laughs> it's great stuff, man. I'm glad you got all of that out. Uh, you said some profound truths in there. You dropped some bars. I'm glad that you said what you did. So for what it's worth, I would have been fine with you continuing. But we are approaching uh, <laughs> We are approaching the hour mark. And I would like to just share one quick thing in uh, 117 if you are done with 115. Okay. So 117, uh, just to kind of like frame the context of, uh, of these verses... Things are kind of wild at this point in the saints' history. This revelation came in response to actually another revelation, or rather Joseph's attempt to follow another revelation that is, uh, that's not present in a, what we have now as the Doctrine and Covenants. That revelation basically told him to uh, get himself and the saints out of Ohio and Missouri. Uh, at that time, the church was in debt. There was a lot of dissent and a lot of apostasy. There was persecutions from outside the church and some kind of banking project that the church had. I think that failed. And there was a few other things that I can't remember. But the direction from the Lord in the midst of all of this was to flee Ohio, flee Missouri. Uh, So Joseph got himself to far west Missouri, which is where the Lord told the saints to gather in section 115. And then basically what follows is uh, in, in, in section 117 is further instruction to uh, some stragglers, some people that are dragging their feet. And uh, once you realize what's happening in these verses, um, you start to kind of feel the pressure that Joseph was under and also the kind of awkwardness he must have felt in composing this revelation. Um, I don't know if you noticed this when you read uh section 117 Derek but there's a recurring Mm -hmm. phrase throughout this whole of section 117 and by the time I got to one of these verses where the phrase was repeated three times I had to start counting so just to kind of put this into perspective there are let me count this there are 16 verses in section 117 uh I don't know if you know the phrase that I'm talking about Derek but uh let's see the phrase is, saith the Lord. Mm-hmm. I went. Uh, I was reading this on my computer, um, section 117, and I did a little search to figure out how many times this phrase appears. There are 16 verses, again, in this whole section. The phrase, saith the Lord, appears 15 times in the whole of section 117. I'm quite certain... This phrase appears more in section 117 than it does anywhere else, any other chapters in the scriptures. There are some other places in the Doctrine and Covenants where we'll see this phrase frequently, but I think this is like the most times saith the Lord is repeated per capita. I don't know what the word is. I don't know what the phrase is. But Mm -hmm. uh, all I'm trying to communicate is that phrase makes a great appearance. And then when you see who this revelation is addressed to, you kind of start to understand why. Um the uh, individuals addressed that Joseph is uh, actually rebuking here are William Marks, Oliver Granger, and probably most notably Newell K. Whitney. Now, Newell K. Whitney's relationship with Joseph Smith was, I mean, the two of them were quite tight. Like, these guys were friends. Newell K. Whitney gave a lot of money to the church. He was one of the key benefactors of uh, some of these projects that the church was engaged in. And they brought in Joseph and Emma to their, uh, you know, to their home when Joseph and Joseph and Emma were homeless. Uh, I think Emma gave birth to a child in their house, and um, you know, Newell K. Whitney was doing his best to follow the law of consecration, among other things. Like Newell K. Whitney was for the most part a great member of the church, and he was a great friend to Joseph and a great ally of the church. So I can only imagine just how awkward this this uh revelation had to be for joseph to uh write because there are some pretty harsh words in here some pretty harsh rebukes at one point he like calls him a i can't pronounce this word nicolation nicolatine let me figure out where this is nicolitane like uh or associates newell k whitney with uh, a nicolitane, nicolitane band and their secret combinations. Basically, he's aligning uh, him with this group of apostates um, that were present in the New Testament. And uh, 
Yeah, and 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 says this insult or this uh, phrase to describe Newell K. Whitney's behavior. Littleness of soul is what he says. I don't see that mm-hmm. phrase anywhere else in the scriptures. So there's just a lot going on here. There's some strong words, some strong associations. And again, I can only imagine how uncomfortable Joseph is with all this. And I'm wondering if saith the Lord appears so many times because Joseph knows how awkward this feels and like that he has to correct one of his friends basically by directing the rebuke as one that's from Mm -hmm. the Lord and not from himself. Or if he's trying to stress that as, um, you know, just a way of saying that, look, I love you, man, but the Lord is basically saying you got to get your act together, you know, or rather the Lord is my source or the Lord is the reason that we're doing all this stuff. Or maybe it's a little bit of both. And uh, regardless of the reason, I think Joseph Smith, as uh, as awkward as this perhaps was for him, I think there's a power in what he did and a power in what we can take from this example. Because I know that a lot of our people, a lot of the people that listen to this show, some of the most frustrating people in their lives when it comes to things like, uh, you know, some of our most uh, polarizing political issues or issues of civil rights, the people that frustrate them most are usually their closest associations or people in their own families. You know what I'm saying? And it can yeah. be really uncomfortable to try to talk to them about this stuff because they're so close. And perhaps if they're parents, especially, you don't want to like talk back to people that have raised you, fed you, clothed you and all this other stuff. But, you know, you can basically do what Joseph Smith said here and defect Um, or like direct attention to the Lord's teachings and the Lord's commandments. And you can do that often. Uh, One of the praises that I've heard of you often, Derek, was how you always source the scriptures in talking about your activism. You always Mm -hmm. direct it back to the Bible. You always direct it back to Christ. And people really appreciate that. And that gives you a lot of power in this work. The fact that you are able... Let me just say... Yeah. That's not because that's not really a strength of mine, but it's a weakness because that's all I know. <laughs> so I, that's, like, <laughs> so I don't have any. I mean, that's that's just what I know, and so that's uh, maybe if I had some other ways of talking about it, I would have something better to say, but I don't. But it works, man, and it's uh, and it's powerful. Like in my opinion, it's powerful. It's something that I've implemented in my own uh, in my own work. I make an effort to uh, refer as often as I can to the scriptures, and uh, in some of the stuff that I've created, a lot of the work I've done, the praise is very similar. People would say, "I love how you just go to the scriptures so often as a source for this work and as a source for your uh, instructions." And I'm just like, "Well, that's the most powerful source," and I think that's what Joseph Smith is doing here. He's like. It's not me, it's God. I'm not saying this, God is saying this. And that can give your preaching a lot of power. It can give your direction a lot of power. It can give your activism a lot of power if you can relate everything that you're doing back to the source of the teaching or back to God himself. So I just wanted to lift that up as a tool that people can use uh, in their work, in their work of uh, reconciliation uh, and anti-racism work, in their work of um, abandoning attitudes and actions of prejudice. It is actually really simple and definitely recommended that you always refer to the Lord as your source whenever possible. Like anytime you can put saith the Lord in Mm -hmm. front of or behind some anti-racist teachings, I would definitely do that because people can't refuse a word of the lord you know what i'm saying like, well they did back to the lord i mean like all throughout the scriptures people were refusing the word of the lord that's why we have so many of them <laughs> yeah but we also can be like you don't want to be like those people do you because you know what happened to those people who refused the lord like not great things and uh again this is what's happening in this section joseph smith is likening newell k whitney to somebody that refused the Lord. One mm-hmm. of the early apostles, or rather one of the early people or bands that gathered around that apostate apostle who refused the Lord. He's like, do you want to be like those guys? No, you don't. Therefore, saith the Lord, do this. Saith the Lord, you are like this. Saith the Lord, get your butt over to far west. So there's a lot going on here that we can uh, pull from in terms of uh, what Joseph is doing here. And it worked. Mm-hmm. Newell K. Whitney got himself mm-hmm. to far west and he served faithfully in the church for the rest of his life. Uh, the same can't be said for uh, William Marks, even though he had a, uh, you know, he had a stint of a success in the church or faithfulness in the church. But Newell K. Whitney, he he kept that course for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there is something to be said there. 
I think it was William Marks who ended up being the priesthood lineage from which the reorganized derived their priesthood. He did end up joining that church. Uh, yeah. And I'm not sure if it was, yeah, it could be him or it could be, Sidney was a part of that church, wasn't he? Or no, he was the first person that Marks went after. He defected yeah. with Rigdon and then just joined a bunch of splinter groups and finally settled on the reorganized church. Yeah, it could be William Marks. I think that's how that plays out. Anyway, anyway. I was going to say something about Section 119, but I don't want to now. <laughs> that's totally fine. That's totally fine. We're getting we can close talk to about okay. tithing another time. That sounds great. I don't tithing think I even had anything topic. new to say that other people haven't already said about tithing. All right. Sounds good to me, brother. Then uh, let's go ahead and wrap some things up. Uh, before we do, just want to remind you guys that uh, Dialogue, a journal, of Mor- a, a, a journal of Mormon Thought, has a new podcast partner we want to put you on to called the Fireside Podcast with Blair Hodges. It features in-depth interviews about religion and culture featuring brilliant writers, scholars, activists, and more. If you're spiritual but not religious or religious but not spiritual or something else entirely, there's a seat saved for you at Fireside. Learn more and listen to Fireside by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Uh, Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, on Twitter and Instagram at btblds, and also on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yo, are the uh, recordings available from the queer from the queer LDS conference? You're talking about the queer general conference thing that happened yes. on Mormons building bridges. Everyone yeah. just submitted their stuff, and guess who said he was going to do something and didn't? Oh, Derek. <laughs> like I told you, unless I have a cheerleader telling me that I, that I need to get this done, like right there on mile twenty, I'm not going to get it done. Uh-huh. Well, I know what one of my jobs is going to be. And also, right. y'all who are in the collaborator group, I give you guys full permission to ride Derek until he gets this online course done. Oh, this course. I want to make that happen. This is all I want to make sure happens by the time next year rolls around. I want this course. Mm, course. The people need this course. So badger Derek about it. Weary oh, him with your pleas. <laughs> Weary him with your pleas. There's like 160 of us in that group. I want 160 messages in this man's inbox telling him what a great idea and what a great necessity this course would be. Weary him with your oh, requests. Yeah, okay. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it'll be like the... Um, what do you mean? Maybe it'll happen. Bro, well, it's no, like we, the, uh, we are making this happen. <laughs> we are making this happen. We need this it's course. Like the, I need this course. It's like the parable of the widow on the unjust judge in luke 18 where she's like where do you think i got that idea (laughs) where do you think i got that idea see bro using the scriptures it's powerful use it as your source yeah well (laughs) so yeah he caves in not because it's right but because he wants the annoyingness to stop yes so everybody Annoy, annoy Derek until I get it done. Annoy oh. Derek. Slide into his inbox. Slide into his DMs. He doesn't check his Instagram DMs. I've checked. Slide into yeah. his DMs on Facebook. Let him know you need this course. Let okay. him know. Well, okay, fine. What would actually help is like people brainstorming what they want from a course. For me, I guess it would be some biblical, scriptural analysis and something or other. But what exactly people? Because what it'll end up being is just me rambling on for twenty hours. Or it could be we'll targeted. <laughs> or it could be targeted to what will actually be um, sort of what are the needs that people are expressing and feeling, and then I can speak into that because otherwise I'm just talking. Certainly, Derek. Certainly, let people. Yeah, people. Let Derek know what kind of class you guys would want, and we'll make sure Derek gets it done. Yeah. Aren't you excited, Derek? I'm excited to see what you produce, bro. I'm so no. excited to see what you produce. No, I'm not. <laughs> I will literally drive all the way back up to Boston just for this. We will spend a whole weekend uh, on it if we need to. Okay, fine. It'll be well, exciting. Well. It'll anyway. also give me an excuse to actually be in town again and go and come see you, bro. So like oh, good. the sooner yeah, you get like this class idea. together, Let's the sooner I visit. can come see you. Yeah, come come back and visit. Now did yes, sir. Uh, 
what else do we need to talk about? I think we've talked about... Oh, my bad, yes. The... Um, let's see. Oh, wanted to give a, a special thanks to uh, Tamara Kemsley for editing the show, David Doyle for editing the transcripts, and uh, Stephanie March and Angela Carter for uh, being a big help with the social media, uh, mining our bars from the show, and you know making them look good for the social media. So really appreciate that. Also want to uh, thank the team who was uh, doing the incredible work of assembling our episode outlines. Uh, Stephanie Peterson, Gabrielle Honda, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These outlines also include the Faithful Feminist episodes and the Holy Human episodes from the same week, so you can have a uh, one-stop shop for your uh, Come Follow Me from the margins. Study helps. Uh, Be aware, though, or rather be advised, that uh, the Faithful Feminists are taking a couple weeks off in preparation for one of their events, so their stuff is not going to be present in uh, these outlines, but uh, they will be back after their uh, event, and I should actually know this name of the event so I can push people toward it but I can put I can put that in the show notes so uh, if you guys don't know about the event they're talking about it on their uh, their Instagram page and uh, again we'll put it in the show notes here oh the links to the outlines uh, Derek what's the uh, what's the link oh it is tinyurl.com slash btb outlines right right and uh, you can also access the outlines uh, from the drop-down menu on our website, beyondtheblockpodcast.com. Our uh, transcripts are also available from that drop-down menu as well. Thank you all for joining us this week. Till we meet again next week. Bye, everyone. Bother Derek. Slide in his DMs. Bother him. Weary okay. him with your requests. <laughs> like I weary, weary you with my jokes? <laughs> yes, payback. Weary him. <laughs>